0: You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm Rick Enlow, I'm your host, and I'm here with Dave Hillis and our special guest, Jack Fortin. Today we're going to be talking about Eucharistic leadership, which is what we have been talking about for some time, and if you haven't uh, checked any of the prior podcasts out, I think uh, I advise it because uh, it's great. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be given, which is actually the fourth movement in Eucharistic leadership. So Dave, why don't you uh, sort of give us a little uh, preview and catch up and a reminder?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Rick. Um, Again, as we've mentioned before on our uh, earlier podcasts around this, um, Leadership Foundations every year picks a theme uh, that kind of shapes our uh, devotional um, staff times each week. And this year, uh, we decided to talk about this idea about the Eucharistic shape of leadership. And, again, the the background to this is that if you actually see the city uh, as God's playground rather than God's battleground, then it probably should have some impact on what your leadership is like. Uh, In other words, you would be leading different if you actually saw the city as a playground. And so for us, we think that probably the, the example that best represents what leadership on a playground would look like is Eucharistic leadership. And the notion, again, is that the Eucharist is more than just what we do in our faith tradition on a Sunday or a Saturday night, depending on what church you go to. But it really was the way that Jesus lived uh, his entire life. And so, again, the notion that uh, in the Eucharistic leadership uh, we are taken, um, we are blessed, we are broken, and then ultimately we are given away back to the world, which is uh,
0: exactly, I think, the way Jesus lived his life. Okay, and the other thing, I think, Dave, that we talked about is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, even way back to the beginning of uh, discussing uh, the book, you know, City as Playground, uh, and you'll have to remind me who uh, who said this originally, but I remember the quote, but that is, if you want to change the world, change the metaphor. Mm -hmm. And and this is another, I think, application of that, because I think, like you said, that the idea of the Eucharist has kind of just been a metaphor for sort of, um, you know, ceremonial, you know, religious observance, you know, mem- in memory of, but, but to, to begin to see it as a, you know, as a, a metaphor for the life of Jesus and the leadership of someone who sees the city that way, I think is, is uh, you know, really what, what you've uncovered.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, it was uh, Joseph Campbell who actually said that, you know, if you wanna change the world, change your metaphor. And uh, for leadership foundations, of course, uh, it has been around this idea of seeing the city as a playground. And I think you're exactly right, Rick. It, uh, it's also true with leadership. You know, if you, if you want to become a, a different kind of leader, you've got to have a different metaphor, a different image for the kind of leadership that uh, you want to provide. And, and we really think that the Eucharist best provides that. Um, Today, you know, we've talked, of course, with others about the first three kind of movements or stages of uh, Eucharistic leadership, and so today, of course, we're going to be talking about this last stage, although I think we always want to remind our readers it's not as though it's linear. Um, You know, first you're taken, you know, then you're blessed, then you're broken, and finally you're given, but it, it tends to be much more circular that this can happen kind of almost rapid fire. You're being blessed, broken, and taken and you know given and vice versa the whole bit um but this this last or this this stage of being given is really what it's all about i mean in other words if if all you are is taken you know and blessed and broken and somehow not given back to the world um you know we would we would call it a failed operation and so um this, this becomes critical. And in particular, Rick, what's important, and this is why I'm really excited to talk to Jack about this, is that Given uh, is fighting against the tendency of leadership that always wants to amass power, um, right? I mean, oftentimes, and we all feel this temptation, but you know, once I get into power, Um, once I get into leadership I want to hold on to the power in fact power itself seems to define leadership it it becomes the chief characteristic of I know Rick's a leader because he has power and again Eucharistic leadership um, in taking that power immediately begins to give it back out and I've always uh, found uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 really curious because remember it's Jesus He has come back, Uh, he is now speaking to his disciples about, you know, um, off you're going to go and evangelize the world. But he says this, he says, The Father has given me all authority, and now I give you all authority, right, to go out and to preach and to teach. Well, what you imagine then would be taking place is that the disciples would be giving all authority, right, giving it away to the people. And it's the, I think it's what I call the velocity of power. It's, it's always giving it away to others in order for them to be empowered. And I think unfortunately what's happened is the father did give the son all power and the son gave us all power. And I think sometimes we don't give that power away. So that's, that's the important of this idea of givenness. And I would finally say too, and this will be again a good conversation with Jack, for me, as we read the, uh, the scriptures and the texts, I think the 800 pound gorilla um, in the text always is who has the power. Um, and we don't, I think, talk about it as honestly as we need to talk about it, uh, particularly in Christian circles, because it's like, you know, I want that power. But I, I oftentimes say that one of the things that uh, happens immediately in Jesus's life is that he is baptized uh, by John the Baptist. And in the course of doing that, he makes this wonderful pronouncement about John. And I mean, here's the, the savior of the world, and yet, you know, he's thinking about another uh, who is very important. And the way I've interpreted that, Rick, is that Jesus is always asking us to recognize whose shoulders we stand on. Um, we're not here, you know, by ourselves, and. Jack is, uh, is clearly one of the uh, prominent uh, people in my life in terms of whose shoulders I stand mm-hmm. on. Um, this could actually end up becoming a whole podcast just about talking about Jack's influence on me, but I had the great pleasure of being on the Young Life staff when Jack was in a senior position. Um, he uh, kind of put his arm around me and helped uh, me kind of uh, make sense of things at t- when things didn't always make sense. Um, and when he left Young Life staff and went to work for World Vision as kind of the number two guy, continued to uh, mentor me as I was working with the Northwest Leadership Foundation, and then finally when I had a chance to step in and take Reed's place within the Leadership Foundations, I think it might have been my very first phone call I made which was uh, to Jack, uh, Jack you have to come on the LF Board uh, of Directors like yesterday, uh, I'm in uh, deep need of help and about almost five years ago now Jack uh, actually stepped into the position as the uh, the chair of the LF board of directors so you know it's uh, it's impossible for me to talk about my life and the things that I've done apart from talking about Jack and of course uh, he has done all this uh, while he and his wife Sarah have uh, lived uh, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota um, and have a son and a daughter-in-law and two wonderful uh, granddaughters Um, so it's Again, uh, just very, very thankful to have Jack here on our
0: show. Yeah, it's great. And uh, and during, you know, during the Christmas season, when someone says there are uh, wise men from the east that came, I always think of Jack. So, Jack, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're glad you're here. Listen now, uh, when when we talk about leadership, uh, you've had leadership in, in a host of areas. So, uh, why do you think that the general concept of leadership? Uh, is so important and, and important enough for you to, you know, not only uh, be a leader, but dedicate yourself like as the chair of the board of leadership foundations.
2: Well, when I think of leadership, I can't think of it simply in secular terms, but I have a hard time looking at the world, secular and sacred. I see it sacred. Um, you know, I think my goal for my life in leadership is that I'm a spiritual person who experiences human experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm not a human person who's looking for spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. So there's a pretty profound difference. Um, It's the same difference that I think when Bob Greenleaf would ask the question, if you're gonna talk about leadership, are you a servant who leads or are you a leader who serves? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people say I'm a leader who serves. I'm out there lead- and Greenleaf would shake his head and say no, you're a servant who leads because if you're a leader who serves, you're always wanting to do it by consensus and go eat worms and do all the things that are deprecate, self-deprecating. And he said that's not what servant leader is. The tough-mindedness of servant leadership is that you come to serve the common good, the community and you do it for the sake of the community and for the kingdom of God. And therefore you have the freedom then to lead in many different ways depending on what's going on. And today leadership, as Dave has pointed out, often is, and particularly in today's political climate, there's a sense in which if you're a leader, you take the hill. It's all about power. It's all about directing people. It's all about having a better idea than the rest, coming with a good idea and then convincing others. Mm -hmm. And because of that popularity, because that's the tendency, it's even more important today for us to come up with a different understanding of leadership. And when I think of Eucharistic leadership, I think it's a beautiful term of pulling together the deep and grounded convictions. That come out of our faith to help drive the practicality of the actions in my daily life as I as I lead lead others. Bob Terry, another one of my good uh, mentors, defined leadership as the courage to call forth authentic action in the commons. And what he said was, it takes a lot of courage to call forth action because it's not me acting and everybody else following i'm calling forth action within the community that is the right kinds of things to do and i have it takes courage to do that Mm -hmm. courage to step out because leadership for him and for me is about action not about contemplation not about theorizing it's is something happening are are people making a difference and are you doing it for the sake of the common good, are you doing it for the sake of the community? Are you doing it because this is God's world? For God who so love the church to give Him God begotten Son, I don't think so. For God to so love the world, and so therefore mm. that connection to me is critical. And then the style and the way in which I do that work becomes uh, particularly important.
1: Jack, that's uh, <clears throat> again. I almost want to say you know Amen, and we'll do an altar call. <laughs> yeah. Um but I, I think again, your your reflection on this is, is great. You know, we uh, we asked you um, obviously to come in and specifically talk about this, what we kind of call the fourth movement uh, of Eucharistic leadership. This idea of of now being given, you know, back uh, to the world. Um, you know, as as you think about this tension, and I know you well enough to know that it will always be this creative tension, but you need power, of course, to get things done. I mean, at, at some basic level, uh, it would be hard to imagine leadership apart from having power. Uh, and yet, it appears also in Jesus' life that you're the minute you get that power, we're being asked to give it away. How do you toggle you know, between the two, knowing that you've got to have power, but you also need to give it away? And, and what are maybe some of the things you've learned in that process? Where are... Some of the obstacles that you find yourself maybe still you know kind of fighting with, but comments about that
2: well, like everybody, you know, I have my good days and my bad days, <laughs> <laughs> and there are my bad days, I want to accrue as much power as I can to move things along with my agenda, and um, yeah. that's uh, doesn't work very well, um, but I certainly have i'm a, Broken as the next person, and so that possibility always is there. I think I'd I'd go back just briefly to Greenleaf. I mean, one of the things is that I look for rules of thumb, that uh, heuristic form of education that hold me on those days when I'm particularly battling my own needs for recognition versus Mm -hmm. giving myself away. To remind myself that I'm a servant, I've been called to do that, I've been called to serve. And uh, whether it's my son or my wife or, or an organization, um, if, if, if through my own you know, spiritual formation, my own spiritual meditation can set myself free to allow myself to serve the neighbor, I really do feel a, a tremendous amount of freedom when I'm there. Hmm. That with a kind of a sense of abandonment I can then come near and close to someone and knowing that my goal is to set them free and to move them to a place that they want mm-hmm. where they want to be and where they are being in alignment and integrated with whatever the mission or the work that's before us. Um, and that's why when I think of the Eucharistic notion, I mean, the Eucharist is the self-emptying you know, it really is a Philippians 2, 5 to 11, mm-hmm. the self-emptying of Christ to me. And so, you know, and it's more than a model. It's, it is a way. It mm-hmm. is um, something I can emulate through God's forgiveness. A second thing that uh, keeps me on track is when I, I'm aware that positional power is the strongest the first day I have a job, And every day that I'm in that position, my positional power recedes because people's fantasies of who I am (laughs) start to break down to the reality of who the limitations I really have. Mm. And that reminder, a constant reminder that I have to ask permission. Mm. And I begin the day forgiving the organization with whom I'm serving. Because if I don't, because every institution will beat you up. And when you're a leader, you get beat up a lot. And if I can start from the position of forgiveness, I'm in a position, of strong position, because mm-hmm. I never feel victim no matter what comes my way as a leader. Mm-hmm. Or I try not to, I should never say never. But I, you know, it, it moves it away when, mm-hmm. when I realize um, to forgive the organization and forgive myself in that process. That creates, I think, a more accepting environment. So I think when it's working, people feel a sense of freedom. People feel a sense that their uniqueness is important to me more than their theory, more than their logic. Mm -hmm. It's who they are and the role that they might play with me Mm -hmm. and my belief in them because I think a goal for me is that I want people to leave feeling like I believe more in them than when they came. And that might come around through some real conflict and it might be some confrontation. But part of loving people, because it takes love to learn, that's one of my rules of thumb, that when you're gonna confront, I try to pull people in close. I don't keep them at a distance. Mm. I pull them in close and say the hard things that need to be said. But hold them while they hear it. Because people can hear, can hear tough things if they know that they're loved, if they know that the person that's talking to them isn't going to leave them, isn't going to... Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, Jack, one of the things that um, you have, uh, you know, I know influenced me a lot around, and this is part of the reason why I think Eucharistic leadership for me is so important, is that its net effect in an organization uh, is what you've called trustworthiness, and you know, in some ways, once an organization has become trustworthy, you can do just about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, without trustworthiness, uh, you almost can't do anything. No matter how full your bank account is, no matter how shiny your project, you know, product is. Um, can you say a bit more about that whole kind of quality of trustworthiness? And <clears throat> I think that also builds right into what you just said in terms of of uh, serving, you know, servant leadership. So
2: well, I mean I think part of servant leadership is to create a, a workforce or a community or a committee or whatever it is to be self managed. That is the is that they own the goal and that my job is to be their biggest cheerleader and also be their guide but not be their controller and for me there's a difference between guiding someone and controlling them Mm -hmm. huge Mm -hmm. in terms of people feeling empowered and being uh, able to move in that way you know it comes from my own theological persuasion you know my Martin Luther is one of my along with Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer and a few others along that line um, Elizabeth O'Connor, some of these people that have been heroes in, in, my, in my day um, talk about the beginning of evangelism for many of them was not speaking the word as we know from St. Francis but the beginning of evangelism is creating a more trustworthy world mm. to create the crucible of trust for which the gospel is the answer well, sometimes the gospel manifests itself in honest talk. It manifests mm-hmm. itself in high productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that trustworthiness is the beginning of bearing witness. Yeah. And it's the difference between proselytization and witness. Witness is creating that kind of environment. Proselytization is trying to make you look like me, talk like me, and be like me. Yeah. So, that trustworthiness is really, to me, at the heart of the Reformation, heart of. And I think the Reformation within the Catholic Church, the reforming that's going on constantly in all of our churches, mm-hmm. has to do with creating a more trustworthy world, which is radical today, mm-hmm. very radical today. Everything was polarized, and so yeah. that becomes
0: really a central piece
1: yep.
2: to the giving. Yep.
0: Well, especially, you know, if you think about, Jack, uh, right now with all the, the headlines where the people who are in power, especially, well, we have to say entertainment, not podcasters but you know especially the uh, you know film and movie industry people that have power that have they have what others want and then they, they take you know what they what they want from others but this context that we're living in where there's such predatorial behaviors by mm-hmm. leaders by the people that hey you know I'm the head of the studio I'm the head of the you know this industry and it's instead of um, becoming a leader who is in a position to contribute, it, they become extractive, you know, and it's it's like they they decide I have the power to take now what I want. And I mean, I, you know, all of us have that sleeping in us. I think, of you know, King David, who, you know, is considered one of the phenomenal leaders in all these different uh, areas of, of expertise. But yet he got to one day where he decided, you know, he was, you know, in a position where he could take whatever he wanted. And, and it seems like that this idea of being given is is a stark contrast to what we're seeing happen now Mm -hmm. you know and
2: and and i don't think that you can stay there long by yourself this is why it's a community enterprise one Mm. of the early mentors that i deeply love is jim of borg warner corporation he said jack you can't stand alone He, he said every good leader that has done good work that is work that is excellent and is socially um productive in the community those people all have a kitchen cabinet around them and I don't mind using kind of secular terms because I think they're also very sacred but he said Mm -hmm. you need three four or five trusted people who believe in you who will shoot straight with you and tell you the straight word be 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 less interesting than interested Mm -hmm. in you and if you could have three or four or five and he told me that as a young man he said collect us we don't ever have to get together, but we will give you the capacity to have wisdom beyond your years and be far more generous with people than you can in and of yourself. And I think that's part of the secret of being a giver is that others are giving to me and others are joining with me mm-hmm. to be honest and open and um, and self-correcting, you know, correcting, mm-hmm. which um, I think is really critical to to keep keep a stance of giving because in and of myself I, I won't do that I am too frail there's mm-hmm. too many points that people can get to me mm-hmm. and instead of trying to protect myself that's why I like what Jim Collins says about a strong leader is one who has a fierceness of direction coupled with disarmed humility And for him, humility was the capacity to have a sane estimate of what you can and cannot do, and have people around you to remind you of that so you don't rob the gifts of others by pretending you're better than you are, which I think it's back full circle to this notion that to be strong and powerful, I have to hide my weaknesses and come out strong and domineering and demanding. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, fortunately, women Mm -hmm. in the workplace have helped to break that down because that's not their inclination. partly because of the socialization of how they were raised. But we need to hear that voice because Mm -hmm. that voice also, I think, contributes to this this notion of giving. I want to say one more thing to connect. You know, if you look at the word liturgy, I was thinking about that in an airplane, come on over, liturgia in Latin. is two words. It's made up of ergon, which means work, and litus, which means service to the community so the liturgy on sunday is really a liturgy to the community a reminder of our faith convictions that drive us to service to the work of service in the community well that's important for me because i go to church on sunday and the sense that it's liturgical there doesn't often say doesn't speak to the apostolic call within the liturgy to send me out and to be sent Mm -hmm. but the very nature of the word liturgy once again ties into the workplace ties into how i lead i can't separate sunday from monday i have to see Mm -hmm. that connection in order to to stay at the Mm -hmm. table to stay at the table
1: yeah yeah in fact i mean i think that's a great comment and Jack, and I, <clears throat> you know, a good friend of both yours and mine, Father Steve Lantry, who is the priest of <coughs> the parish I go to, uh, when he and I talk about um, the Mass, he'll oftentimes, you know, because he's a Jesuit, and this is what Jesuits do, they ask provocative questions. And I remember one night we were talking, and he said, if you had to put your finger on kind of the moment of Mass, the high moment of mass you know what would it be I thought well this is a softball I mean right it's it's got to be the great amen you know when he holds up the Eucharist and um, you know we all you know in the Catholic tradition you know we'll sing you know the amen five times and then we'll proceed to the meal and uh, so I gave him my answer and kind of almost like patted myself (laughs) on the back a little bit and he said no I don't think so he says I think it is the sending forth you know, that at the very end of the Mass, um, now go forth, you know, and serve Mm -hmm. the Lord. And, you know, like he has done many, many times, he put me back into my, you know, kind of seat and and corrected me very uh, lovingly. But I think your point is exactly right, you know, that what it is about, what the liturgy is about is to empower us, right, to go now back into the world that God so loved, as you described, you know, beautifully at the beginning, and uh, I, I like that a lot. You know, the, the, um, just because I know you talk, Jack, with a lot um, of leaders uh, at various levels from your role at Augsburg College right now and your work with the president of that college to um, your work with us and leadership foundations and our board of directors. Um, if you had to put your finger on what are the obstacles that you find as you mentor you know, people like myself and others that keep them from kind of this generosity of life, this giving themselves. What, what would you say it is? What, what keeps coming up time and again as, as you have these conversations?
2: I find that one of the biggest obstacles is that people, when they want to sit with me that are working with me, mm-hmm. um, They tend to want to hide their weakness or the thing that they didn't do well Mm. and then they get stuck and and i can feel it i Mm. can feel they're going yeah 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 and i'm going "Ah, no they're going no 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 (laughs) so uh, sometimes i just say where do you feel stuck right now Mm. where do you feel most vulnerable in your leadership what what isn't working for you and sometimes i have to be vulnerable than myself and say, there are days when I just, um, I'm thinking of all the things I didn't do yesterday and I just don't feel good about me. And so then it's hard for me to feel good about the people around me. And then mm-hmm. I watch the quality of work go down because they don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong with me, but it sure ain't, it isn't creating the environment. You know, mm-hmm. culture will trump plans every time. So if my creating mm-hmm. a culture, that is not a crucible of hope, is not a crucible of acceptance, then that's a distracting culture that's gonna keep people from moving forward. And I think the, one of the big obstacles is I don't, I, it's not what leaders know, it's what they don't know about themselves or ourselves. I'm not putting myself over against. It's what I don't know about myself. What isn't those motives that are going on right now in my head are, are the distractions. And so unpacking those, And Dave, I know from your own leadership, you do a very good job of that. You ask people, what's the fire in the hallway? There's several ways you can get at that. Mm -hmm. But if you can't get that out, um, and I've been looking at your list of where that is, and I've moved it up some (laughs) just because sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like people are so stuck. They need to tell me what the fire in the hallway is so we can get beyond it. So that would be... that's right. you know, a lot of days it's not that. But. Yeah. You know, the other
1: thing, Jack, I've heard you talk about in terms of an obstacle, and I, I think this is kind of genius on your part, is kind of the cult of idealism. And, and by that, you know, we've got this image in our head, and part of it's from the leadership industry, that here is a leader and it's, this person is flawless. You know, they're uh, they're, you know, like this... Know, kind of manna from heaven and if if somehow I don't live into that um, I can't lead and so what do I do with motives that maybe aren't always as pure as I would hope you know what do I do with clearly a skill set that you know feels like you know it was kind of at the back of the line when talents were handed out and I allow that to literally you know move me to a state of paralysis at times mm-hmm. and I've, I've sat with many leaders where it essentially gets down to I just am not, you know, good enough. And it's like goodness has got, you know, nothing to do with it, or, or at least it's not the whole story. But maybe make a comment or two about that, Jack, as you, you know.
2: Well, I think we live in such a competitive society. I mean, my biggest thorn in my flesh is growing up competitively in a competitive high school and then in a college where if I was an A person, I was A. A A student, I was an A person. If I was a B student, I was a B person. So my performance defined who I am. I take that into the workplace. Mm-hmm. I no longer have an interior life that's driving my call. I have an exterior dependency on everybody else around me. And I'm fighting with everybody because it's not good enough for me to win. I have to make sure somebody's losing for me to feel good. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest thing, is the biggest barrier for me is to break that. And the crucified Christ breaks that because he's the only religious icon in my life that deals with innocent suffering. Hmm. I can't find any other religion that Hmm. actually addresses the kind of innocent suffering that pricks away for me either. So I think it's that ego need Mm-hmm. And that competitiveness, it has to be broken down. And I also think it's the suffering. that I feel hurt. I feel someone pained me, and I can't get beyond it. Mm-hmm. And so um, my crucified Lord is the one who says, Jack, you want to deal with embarrassment? Let me tell you a few times I got embarrassed. Mm. You want to deal with pain? Let me talk about pain. Mm. You want to do death? Let's do- <laughs> I mean, there's just no area that the... Mm -hmm. the person of Jesus Christ doesn't share my humanity in such a deep level it's not something I read it's something Mm -hmm. I experience Mm -hmm. Um,
1: yeah in fact I you know again maybe said another way one of the things that I've discovered about leadership um, both in my own life and talking with others is how most leaders have a deep sense of illegitimacy that if if people really knew who I was I would get fired like yesterday mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that sense of, of illegitimacy um, is is just pervasive um, and it can happen through so many different angles from you know my understanding of who God is to my relationship to my colleagues to you know what what I know to be the state of my soul um, And I I think, you know, the enemy, um, if we want to say it that way, is it seems to me constantly trying to, you know, illegitimize. us
2: down. Yep. Yeah, I think illegitimacy would be a word that would be very strong, and I think it's true. And I think even on a more simple level, I think people are afraid to be found out that they're not, they're not capable of just doing what everyone thinks the job requires Mm -hmm. and that they've got to not just be good they have to be outstanding I remember um, Terry Fredheim was Old Testament professor at Luther Seminary it was in a clinical setting we were talking and that's where we did these cross uh, department gatherings so you'd have an Old Testament professor there and someone in pastoral care and And it was in a pastoral care setting that Terry Fredheim came in to kind of give an Old Testament take. And his thing was, after he listened to me talk, he said, isn't it wonderful that God said in the Genesis that it was good and not perfect? Mm. (laughs) He said, God didn't create perfection. Why does he think he's Mm, going to want you to be perfect? Wow, did that take the air out of my, my balloon. And I went, that's right. And he says, the key is you're good enough is often probably better than other people's perfection. But you don't know it because you're trying to do that last 10% that doesn't have that much value anyway. Hmm. So, you know, God said it was good. He didn't say it was perfect. didn't try to make us perfect. Tried to, he wanted a relationship, not a mm-hmm. perfect human being. Mm-hmm. Um, Why are we trying to do that? And why do we expect people under us to do that? The sad thing is, if I don't know myself, then I portray on everybody else, they better be really good because I'm feeling so bad about me. You're going to make me look good. So you throw that on people, too. And so that's another huge distraction, I think.
0: Well, you know, Jack, when we think about um, the kind of leadership that amasses power, you know, that kind of tries to hold on and, and even, I don't know, becomes a bully you know, at a corporate level. But it's harder to think about people that really have shown us servant leadership. Who, who has shown you that? Who are some people, you know, in, in through the journey that you've said, you know, now I, I see it here, you know, as, as this person leads whatever endeavor it is, just as an example to us. Can you think of anybody? Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: Um, probably the first one comes to mind is Dick Broholm, who founded the Robert Greenleaf Center, who knew Bob Greenleaf very well, Dick would, um, I would call Dick because he was the one that I would talk to about kind of where my life was going and the strategy behind it and I'd often call him. He was available to me and um, I would call him and be complaining about something and somebody did something and he said well talk to me about it and I'd complain and complain and get mad and he said are you done yet? I said no, I got some more. <laughs> so I'd go on and on with that and then I'd literally exhaust myself almost to the point I'd start laughing because it was just so dumb, but I just couldn't let it go, you know. Mm -hmm. And finally, out of his love, he would say, okay, now what's the faithful thing to do with that person? Mm -hmm. And it was such a wonderful, for someone else to name it, you know, that I had to actually start thinking about how I'm gonna be good to this person I'm just so doggone mad at. And he says, well, what's the faithful thing to do, Jack? Mm And he did it after I was able. So that would be a person who took more interest in me and kind of led me along the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would, I thought of my friend Norma Madsen, who she was on the American Family Board and she was on the Young Life Board and she's very attractive and comes off extremely competent in everything she does. And I won't go into the details, but there was a moment... In her life, we were driving along on a highway and she shared with me her own internal pain over some things that she wished she would have done differently. At That moment she became human to me. And secondly, she became a person safe enough to actually talk about what I'm going through as a leader, knowing Mm -hmm. that I wasn't having to live up to some ideal that I had of her And I think the reason she was vulnerable with me, is she realized I was putting her on a kind of pedestal that was uncomfortable for her as well. Mm. Mm. So the gift of people being vulnerable back, I think. I mean, the other person I have to say is, you know, I had a spiritual director of at least 50 years before he died, that I could call anytime after nine o'clock at night wherever I was in the world. And literally when I was with World Vision, I was in a lot of different places in the world. He would, no fuss, no muss, he would just start right in on talk to me about what's going on you know and would be praying for me and you know just having that kind of backbone that no matter what was going on no matter how hard it got i think in my 50 some years in ministry i've never been alone mm. and i think of the number of pastors the number of people in mm. business who who live a very, i've never been alone i've always had someone that I could call to kind of make it right, or to talk it through with, or and, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. and I take that as norm, and it really isn't norm. I think that's why we're having these kind of podcasts.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right, and I I would say Jack that you um, part of the reason I think you have not been alone is that you pretty early on, I mean, as early as I met you, had established I think the theological conviction. That God calls uh, us in community, mm-hmm. and I remember—I remember distinctly at the age of whatever I was—going, um, "Huh!" Uh, <laughs> I always thought this was kind of my rodeo, and 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 somehow to begin to kind of, you know, um, discover that uh, that it was there in the text all along, um, you know, time and time again. I think was your argument that that again, God calls in community. Um, and I'd love to hear you maybe say a bit more about that because while you know, you've know, you been graced with many, many people and there's no doubt about that, I think you were looking for it as well, though, because of this theological conviction you had.
2: Yeah, maybe it's <clears throat> just because I'm a chicken. of <laughs> <laughs> find people around me to help me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was early on, though. I think it was growing up in a family where my father if if i was mad at my sisters he would not let us go to bed until we resolved it not mm. that we had to resolve it and like each other he never said now it bothers me sometimes when parents say say i'm sorry my dad said don't say you're sorry until you're ready and if i I said it too quickly he'd go you're not ready mm. so you're not leaving this room and I learned that conflict wasn't a bad thing. I learned that you needed to be in community. So I, it started very early in watching my parents pray their, through their own arguments. They did not hold back. So I think I was blessed with a family where it was just open and you got it out at whatever it took to do it, mm-hmm. and you found yourself getting healed by that, mm-hmm. that process. But it wasn't kind of a cheap, form of it. It wasn't saying, okay, Jack, now go make up to your sister. No, I'll be here. You two come in here and let's fight it out. What was the disagreement here? You know, mm-hmm. and, and unfortunately, being the younger brother, I was often the one that had to eat a lot of crow. <laughs> it was usually when it got to the table of discussion and mm-hmm. dialogue. Mm-hmm. I was usually one of the wrong. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but I learned that I could be wrong and Nothing bad happens. I don't have to hide it. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, and I, you know, that's yeah. important. And I
1: think, I think one of the reasons that role of community is so important is <laughs> that at least as it relates to this, this notion of being given, is I think about many of the days in my life where if I was left alone to make the decision, I wouldn't give. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But it becomes the community that actually will give me um, sometimes even against my protest. Um, and I, I think again, the fidelity, the trustworthiness of the community. Um, I, I, I think of I get, there's so many examples, but even as recent as our, our board meeting here a couple weeks ago in Knoxville, And there were a couple of moments um, you know, where either I had to get up front or speak about this, and you know, if someone had come to me right at that moment, and said, do you want to do this tonight? It's like, no. <laughs> but it's you, Jack. It was, you know, some of the others on my team that said, no, you, you need to do this. And I, I've always loved that little image in, in the book of Acts, um, and it essentially is right after Pentecost, and Peter is now getting up to give, you know, the first sermon. But the, the Luke says, and Peter stood up with the eleven, And at least the image I have is that here's this big porch, and he's getting ready to give this first sermon, and for whatever reason they've decided that Peter's the spokesperson. He stands up, but then all of a sudden, maybe three people over, another person pops up, and then another person pops up. And, you know, just that sense that you're not Mm going to give this sermon alone. Um, This is our sermon. You happen to be the spokesperson but this, this is our collective voice. And I, I think you've, uh, you've shown me that a number of times about just the importance of community uh, in, in the process of being given. Mm-hmm. So
2: There's a time in my life when I, I did not do that and that was when I was at World Vision. And even though I think I made some pretty significant impact on that, given the level of senior vice president I was in, I would say that several of those years were marked by my being um, in 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 a kind of isolation that was not healthy for me. Mm. And I didn't make the kinds of dis- decisions that I would have made had I been closer. Some of it was geographical. I was way out on the coast, and most of the people that supported me was either on the east coast or the midwest. And it wasn't that they didn't support me, so I never felt... Mm-hmm. Alone, but I did experience a kind of self-imposed isolation, just busyness and doing. And just I remember saying to Sarah, "This is not how I want to live. This is not this is not what I signed up for, Sarah. Not for you. Not for me. Not for my ministry." Mm-hmm. And it was one of the reasons, after a few years of being there, feeling like it made impact, that internal reasons why I I I left Gorulia, not because. I don't love World Vision. I do, but at that point in my life, I needed uh, something different. I, I needed to reframe. Mm-hmm. So I think we go through those times. So I don't want to come yeah. off as one who. Yeah. Uh, it's been a, like a sailboat. It goes <laughs> mm-hmm. transverses from being really good to there's times when I I lose my way.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I know you and I have talked about this uh, before, but. There's this arc that takes place in the Gospels, and it, it probably is most prominent in John. But it's as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, um, his language actually becomes more and more intimate. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time that John, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 roll around, I mean, it's almost like it's kind of bedroom talk. I mean, mm-hmm. right? It's, you're my friends, you know, you're not going to be like those. And I've oftentimes thought, is the theological interpretation of that, that the bigger the task, um, you know, the greater the vision, the more we need each other in relationship, Mm -hmm. not the less. And I think, again, the world does just the opposite, right? When there's a really big thing, it's like we split up and divide and get around our particular Mm -hmm. issue, but like Jesus always does, he reverses that. And uh, when I think about, you know, city as playground, I mean, it's a, you know, pretty big vision Um, you know, you would would certainly say, which is one of the characteristics you've talked about in terms of a call, it's impossible um, apart from God's presence. But it would also certainly be impossible apart from uh, really being with a group of colleagues, of friends uh, that you know have got your back. Um, Mm -hmm. So,
0: Well, I think what I hear, you know, sort of my takeaway is that Mm -hmm. you can amass power or community (laughs) but it's at the expense of you know one or the other I mean it it seems like that people that you know when you get in a position where you think you are powerful and you know you're going to become more of a taker than a giver it's at the expense of community and and then you end up isolated you know so I think that's one of the gifts I think when you say you know as a you know pastors we we always tell everybody well of course we're not alone you know uh you know because Jesus is with us right but it's hard to it's hard to conceptualize that if if some of his guys aren't with you or you know his, his, some of his you know his people and uh and so I think that that's that's powerful and I think that when you think about the the shape of leadership that this whole sort of journey uh through Eucharistic leadership has been really really helpful to me as a person but also um like you're talking about jack uh, unless you can uh, you know somebody, unless you know you know this idea of Eucharistic leadership is a is personified. It's it's a person that I know. It could stay pretty fuzzy, but you're one of those people, and so I thank you for that, mm. and I thank you for uh, speaking into our lives. and And uh, for those of you that uh, want to tell your friends about this podcast, we recommend it. Uh, and you can also uh, interact with us and ask questions at leadershipfoundations.org. So we thank you once again. Thanks, Dave.
1: Thank you, Rick. Thanks,
0: Jack. Thank you, Rick. Okay, talk to you again.